This Revelation series has been a lot of fun. Uh, <clears throat> you guys can bring the slides up. Uh, <clears throat> well, y'all laughing? It hasn't been fun, or it's been fun all the time. <laughs> so um, this week, there's a lot in this passage. So if you see somebody next to you starting to doze off, just elbow them and say, what he said just now was really good. Just go like that with them really quick so they know they missed something. This is week 39, who was, who is, and is not. Now, some of you may not know this about me. Times I can be a bit dramatic. Sometimes I'm a little hyperbolic. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> Not too long ago, Laura and I were driving to meet some friends, and 41 was an absolute parking lot. It's as bad as I ever remember it being in the history of my time in Sarasota. And I huffed, and I shook my head, and, and uh, how should I say, verbally expressed frustration with other drivers who aren't as good as me. <clears throat> And I looked over and I said to Laura, we are going to miss dinner. We're never going to get off this road. We're going to be stuck here forever. <laughs> and Laura looks at me, me with that wife look and she says, Joe, that's a little bit dramatic, don't you think? <laughs> but you know the feeling, right? Have you ever been in a miserable situation that felt like it had no end? We have all felt that sometimes. Sometimes it was just like an annoying thing that felt like it would never end. Other times it's, it's real suffering that can seem to have no end in sight, no light at the end of the tunnel. And I can tell you, as bad as some of those times have been for us, compared to the tribulation that John's readers were living through, it makes our stuff look a little different. There's no doubt the tribulation they suffered under Roman rule probably felt like it had no end. Nothing seems like it could possibly interrupt it. If they were going to endure that tribulation, they desperately needed to be blessed and encouraged with fresh wisdom from God. And that was why God gave John the book of Revelation. <clears throat> they needed to be able to see beyond the literal living hell of life for Christians under Roman rule and be able to see the bigger picture. And that brings us to the last half of chapter 17 of our passage today. This is after he's seen, we talked about last week, this great prostitute called Babylon the Great, which represents all the world empires riding on top of the beast, which represents the power of Satan. When I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast you saw was, is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. The dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was, is not, and is to come. This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast, that was and is not. It is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. 
The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Yeah, there's a lot there. (laughs) You say, wow, now, just... We're not done. (laughs) The ten horns you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate, naked, devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to carry out this purpose of being of one mind, handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of earth. There is a lot in there today, so... For the first 15 minutes, you're really going to have to pay attention, okay? The historical part of this passage is really critical. It's called keep it relevant. I want you to see there's no doubt that these people were living through tribulation. Understanding Revelation begins with knowing, this is important, when you read Revelation, you have to first start with the assumption that all of its visions, all of its metaphors were 100% relevant to its original readers. John wrote it to them, not you. During an Rome controlled virtually the entire world and the empire seemed unstoppable. And life under Roman rule for a Christian, especially a Jewish Christian, was in fact full of terrible suffering. It was in fact a tribulation. They could, because understand, it wasn't just from Rome they faced tribulation. They also faced relentless persecution from other Jews who resented followers of Jesus, who embraced the teachings of Christ. Let me ask you a question. How do you think first century Christians would respond to some of our modern interpretations that say what they lived through wasn't really the tribulation? See, they knew what they were experiencing was the tribulation. It's why John said, we are all partners together with you in it. This is basically when John wrote it, he said, listen, I know what you're going through. I am in jail myself for following Jesus. But I have something that is beautiful to tell you. All right. The next thing I want you to see, there's this mention of seven hills or seven mountains. I've shown you how Jews referred to Rome kind of code language as Babylon, right? We saw that in Peter's letters. Clear proof that they understood that Rome was part of that prophecy in Daniel 7 that we unrolled for you and unfolded for you about six, seven weeks ago. The seven heads representing seven mountains, this is what this does. It irrefutably places first century Rome and John's readers right into the timeline of biblical prophecy. See, many... Many of you may not realize this, but Rome has known, was known and is still known throughout the ancient world as the city of seven hills. It was built among seven hills, and by the way, Rome still is among seven hills, seven mountains. This is another example of how Revelation was 100% relevant to John's readers, written specifically for them in their time, for them to be blessed and encouraged. Rome had at that time become the pinnacle of human achievement. 
greater than any other world empire before. That, in fact, was also a prophecy of Daniel. Do you remember that? Where he said the fourth empire will control Israel and the whole world and break into pieces all the other three empires that came before it. That's what Daniel said in chapter 7. But even though Rome seems unstoppable and massive, as with every other world empire and king in human history, all other empires and kings around them started to hate Rome. They resented her for, their, for her power and domination. And for centuries, those kingdoms and empires outside of Rome's eastern border attacked Rome constantly, exploiting the border, looking for weaknesses. That constant nuisance, this military nuisance, combined with what became a very clear moral and political rot within Rome, caused the empire to fall. More on that later. So that's the seven hills. We know for sure, there's no doubt that he's talking about Rome in this passage. I want you to see this phrase, a mind with wisdom. You know, we saw this phrase, I don't know if you guys remember, we saw this phrase in Roman, or Revelation 13, verse 8. Do you guys remember that? When John was introducing a metaphor for how the Roman Empire wouldn't last forever. Do you remember? He says in Revelation 13, verse 8, this calls for wisdom. Let one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, a man. And his number is 666. And I explained to you how repeating this phrase, what would happen is when John said in 13, this requires wisdom. And now he says here in chapter 17, this requires wisdom. John's reader would say, oh, wait a minute. We've heard this before. What was he teaching us then? He's clearly teaching us another illustration of the same thing. The first time he's talking about the number of the beast. We learned at how that number was Nero's name spelled in Hebrew letters, which they use for like Roman numerals, and it was 666. And he says, look, that number is 666. Whenever you see that number, it's a reminder for you that all human empires will fail. That's why we learned a few weeks ago that 666 isn't an evil number for you to run from when you see it happen in your world or see it at the end of a phone number or something like that. It doesn't mean the, whoever has the phone number is the devil. It means... Oh, 666. Oh, I remember that. Human empires will fail. It's an encouragement, not a curse. It reminded them no matter how permanent Rome seemed, it was a mortal kingdom and would suffer a mortal fate. So this sets their minds to know they are about to get another encouragement about the mortality of earthly empires. So that's the history. I just want you to make sure you understand those things. Look at the spiritual part, the theology of this. I want to talk about evil's implosion. This phrase right here, was and is and is not. Church, listen to me. This is so critical. Remember when John saw that vision of Babylon, the great prostitute riding the beast, John said he marveled at her beauty and her power. And then the angel asked John, why do you marvel? Let me tell you who this is. It was, it is, but it is not. This phrase right here is the critical clue to an accurate interpretation of this metaphor. It describes the beast with a timeline, was and is, and is not a timeline that has an ultimate termination. When you hear was and is and is not, question, does it sound like sort of like a description of someone else, but just a little bit different? You guys pick up on that? 
Who does it sound like? Who was and is and is to come? John's Christian readers would immediately notice the same thing you just did. And they would pick up on this contrast between the beast who was and is and is not and Jesus, the one who was and is and who is to come. Who is is a Hebrew idiom, idiom meaning no beginning and no end. But this is who is not. This beast that Rome and Babylon, the great prostitute rides, has a different fate, a different timeline than the one who was and is and is to come. This one has a timeline who was and is and is not. The was is all the beast's past greatness, all prior empires that took their turn riding the beast. The is refers to the present greatness, which was Rome, what John's readers were experiencing. The is not declares that these earthly empires aren't eternal. They have a beginning. They have an ultimate end, an ultimate implosion, an ultimate destruction, and a judgment. And we've seen this throughout history, have we not? Empires continue to fall. Seven heads. Okay. This is real easy. Right? We see he says there's a seven then there's a five, and then there's a sixth, and then there's a seventh, and then an eighth that belongs to the seventh. We got it? Okay, let's move on. Simple enough. <laughs> I know some of your eyes kind of glazed over when I was reading that passage earlier, but this seems coded, right? It seems mysterious, and it seems complicated, but it's really very simple, and I'm going to break it down for you. These heads are an explanation of how what was and what is and what is not plays out over the course of human history. That's really what it is. It's an explanation of was and is and is not. First off, the number seven represents completion, meaning the completion of human history. That's why there's seven. Seven empires is a metaphor for the beginning and end of human history. The seven heads are a metaphor for seven empires who ride the beast, who dominate the world at different times in history. Empires who each take their turn as the great prostitute who rides the beast and seduces the world into unfaithfulness. The five who have fallen, was, are a metaphor for any empires that existed before Rome. They are who was. The sixth is Rome, riding the beast. When John wrote this, it was her turn to seduce the whole world. And that's who, who is. The seventh will be another empire after Rome. And then it says there's an eighth that is not yet, but belongs to the seventh. This means that after Rome... There will be another, and then another, and then another, and they will all take turns riding the beast. All was and is, but ultimately is not. This, this fits perfectly into every metaphor we've seen throughout the whole book of Revelation, does it not? Of all these world empires who receive their power from the beast... Each one of these empires are part of the beast who was, who is, and who is not. And they will all end. This is what John is telling his readers. Then we see these ten kings. The symbolism of the number ten throughout the Bible is a metaphor representing the pinnacle of human unity and achievement. It's a facade that feeds a constant and chaotic cycle of earthly governments that come and go that rise up against one another. The ten kings are a metaphor for every king 
or nation throughout history that have the same mind and the same ambition. You know what that is? They want to ride the beast. They hate whatever empire is riding the beast at the time. This is exactly a callback to chapter 6 when we study the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Do you remember that? It's the same thing from a different camera angle. They all want to use their hour of power, their 15 minutes of fame. Remember, John says they're in power for an hour. He doesn't mean 60 minutes. He means for a short time. They all want to use their 15 minutes of fame to take down the great prostitute, be the ones to conquer Rome or whatever empire is riding the beast. They want to take, their, take her down and take her place. This chaotic cycle of war that we see here and in chapter 6, you know what these are, this cycle? It is a catalyst for this tribulation Jesus warned us and his disciples was coming once he resurrected. Matthew chapter 24. See if, this, see if you can see how this fits. You will hear wars and rumors of wars. See that? See that you are not alarmed. Don't be afraid. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Isn't this exactly what John is describing? With the ten kings who hate the, empire, the empires that are riding the beast and they want to come against them? And here's the interesting thing. God allows these kings to pursue this desire to do the work of the beast. And why does he do it? So he can expose all who are part of the wicked and gather them for final judgment. This entire chaotic world system, the empires and the kings who hate them, they all sit on many waters. The idea there is loud, roaring waters. This is a metaphor for all the unredeemed throughout history that are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. They are all in on that chaotic mess, blindly loyal to the beast's system of chaos. They're all seduced by one empire or another, or one king or another. It's a bloody, chaotic, hopeless, pathetic cycle of human history. And it's all they have. It's pretty pathetic, huh? All right, so that's the history and the theology. Let's talk about the personal. Don't hope in what is not. Simple enough? This was the sermon preview this week. People with wisdom don't hope in what is, what was, is, and is not, but in the one who was, who is, and who is to come. So let me start off by saying what many people have tried to do, good-meaning people, have tried to do with this passage throughout church history. They have tried to interpret this passage through the lens of the world order at their time. Many have tried to match the names of earthly empires to the seven heads, and even to the ten kings that form up this image of the beast. Did you know in the Middle Ages, many Christians believed the seventh head was the Ottoman Empire because that's who finally destroyed what was left of Rome. Well, this has to be the seventh beast. This came after Rome. After that, they realized, well, no, that one's gone, so maybe it's the, the Mongolian Empire. And after that, no, it looks like it's the Spanish Empire. In modern times, people have linked Russia or Germany or China, or even the USA, what was really big was when the EU started and there were 10 nations. They said, oh, this is the 10 kings. Well, now there's like 16, <laughs> so that doesn't work. Some have tried to link, even get this now, some have tried to link the UK, which by the way, I don't know if you know this about the United Kingdom, at its peak, it was the greatest, largest empire in human history. It's a shell of itself. So here's the problem with trying to interpret this literally. Literally. 
there's only seven heads and ten kings on the beast to go around. <laughs> right? If you insist on trying to match them to specific ones, you're going to run out of heads and kings. <laughs> you're going to leave someone really good out. <laughs> but see, this was not intended for that purpose. It's not intended to be some mysterious code to decipher specific future world orders. It's not intended to be a prophecy for Christians to use and to obsess over to decode into it the names of specific kings and empires. And I think sometimes when people make this mistake of painting the world's future, it becomes very mysterious, does it not? And very frightening. Oh my gosh, who's the next beast? Who are the kings? This is kind of frightening, like, we got to fight against this. But frankly, it's not mysterious. This is the whole point. John is not saying, I'm going to give you this so you'll have to guess more. He says, this is the revelation of Jesus. I'm opening things up for you so you can see the whole thing. We can see here how it has and how it is and how it will always play out. It's not supposed to be mysterious or fearful because perfect love does what? It cast out fear. John didn't write Revelation to scare Christians throughout the church age, but to bless them and to encourage them. That's why he says, if you read this, you'll be blessed, not frightened. This metaphor is designed to reveal the nature and the process and the chaotic cycle of how evil dominates the unredeemed in this world. This metaphor is designed to be a reminder, an encouragement, a blessing to all who read it until Jesus returns. This metaphor is designed to remind us there will always be another prostitute who rides the beast, including in our time. This metaphor was designed to reveal that this powerful, chaotic world system will, however, ultimately implode on itself as one king rises against another Nation against nation, king against king. This is why it takes wisdom. He says it takes the mind of wisdom to understand this. To pull back, get a big picture, stop obsessing over the daily headlines and look at what's really happening. Revelation chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus says, I am the alpha. This is in Revelation, the first chapter. I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God, who was, who is, who was, and who is to come. The Almighty. See, this is the beauty. This is this is the beauty of why I'm I'm having so much fun preaching Revelation. It was hundred percent applicable to its original readers. You understand that? It wasn't written for them to say, "Wow, that's strange." I guess we're going to have to wait two thousand years. No, that's not the that's not what happened with Revelation. When they were reading it, it was hundred percent applicable to them, not some far off future generation. But here's what's beautiful about it. Its spiritual metaphors are also 100% applicable to every believer throughout the church age, including us here this morning. You know what I think of when I see the ten kings who all hate the prostitute and come against her and rise up? I see a microcosm of what happens here every four years. (laughs) I'm just telling you, that's what I see. Yep, seems about right. (laughs) See, this teaches us if we have this wisdom that John says, this takes the mind of wisdom. If we have this wisdom, we'll understand the big picture of this chaotic cycle and how it will all ultimately implode, collapse, and end. 
We won't live in fear. We won't worry or obsess with every fleeting temporary political shift or global power change. See, wisdom encourages us to live beyond that. Wisdom encourages us to keep our allegiance to the eternal kingdom over any earthly one. Wisdom reminds us why we can, with confidence, live faithful to our Jesus as we await the return of the one who was, who is, and who is to come, the King of Kings. You know what else wisdom does? Listen carefully. Wisdom protects us from the seduction of any earthly empire that promises peace and prosperity in exchange for our loyalty or even our vote. Wisdom helps us understand that these kings, these nations, they only hold power for an hour. And when they do, whatever power they have, the scripture says they just give it over to the dragon and do what he wants. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Question, is studying Revelation starting to help you better understand why Jesus taught us to pray this way? I sure hope so. I mean, I sure hope that you're getting, you know, it used to be like when I was a young Christian, yeah, Jesus, I'll be glad when Jesus returns, but I got a lot of living to do. But I hope, and there's nothing wrong with enjoying life and wanting to live, but when Jesus comes back, it's going to be way better than anything you could imagine. So it's really okay to pray, your kingdom come. <laughs> come on, Jesus. Right? Like, wouldn't it be great to wake up on Monday morning to Armageddon? Get your coffee, get your bagel, and watch it go. But see, this beast chaotic cycle really has made the unredeemed world a hopeless place for the inhabitants of earth, hasn't it? It's a cycle of seduction, deception, destruction, Political, economic, moral, social chaos. But this will all be their end when it implodes, and we're going to be talking about that next week. See, it's, it's reminding you, this metaphor, it's reminding you that you don't have to live as a slave to the world's sad cycle of false hope and broken promises. We are not part of the loud waters that the beast is sitting on. We drink the living water, and we don't thirst for this world anymore. When the redeemed are inspired to live differently, free from the prison of worldly hope that is ruled by evil and darkness. We aren't slaves to obsession with human empires or politicians, or political parties, or kings that all desperately want a turn at riding the beast themselves. As subjects of an eternal kingdom, wisdom sets us free to focus on living not as slaves to the beast, but as a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We are liberated from slavery to chaos, deception, and seduction, and we live for proclamation, integrity, and industry. Let me ask you, do you today have wisdom? Do you have wisdom that is setting you free from 
obsession with what was and is. Has wisdom placed your desire, your hope in a different king? The one who was, the one who is, and who is to come? Dear Jesus, we, we just want to start with confession. Man, it's really loud down here. <laughs> there's a lot going on. I know you know all about it. But there's a lot of things that are clamoring to distract us from your kingdom. There's a lot of things that want us to turn away and be unfaithful to proclamation and integrity and industry. So, Lord, we, as James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. God, we are asking you today for the mind of wisdom to help us see this world for what it really is. And when the seduction starts to get hard and we're tempted to take a sip of that cup, that you would allow us to have eyes that see and hears to hear the truth and understand the same metaphor, the same lesson, the same encouragement you were giving to your people in the first century, which is kingdoms come. Kingdoms go. There's rumors of wars and nation up against nation. But the kingdom of God will endure forever. Lord, I pray for those here today. And Lord, I know that it kind of goes in cycles for some of us. Some today are really struggling with how loud the beast is. It's really hard to stop paying attention to all that stuff. It's really hard to not listen to the false promises and the false hope. So Lord, I ask that you would insert wisdom in the hearts and lives of everyone here this morning. And help us to be diligent and busy with kingdom work. Not for things that will one day implode on themselves. All that being said, it'd be great if you came back tomorrow. (laughs) In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. See you this week.